Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you want to watch the interviews, go to YouTube and search for the North Star Unplugged channel. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of North Star Unplugged. I'm your host, Kristen Rainey, and today I'm here with Shauna Sadowski, whose career as a sustainability leader in food companies has spanned from Cliff Bar to Annie's to General Mills to Simple Mills, where she is now. Shauna grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan, Canada, and has an intimate understanding of how agricultural and farm systems connect to the foods we eat, why this matters, and what a food business can do about it. She's leveraged her background in business and agriculture to be a voice for change in the food industry, including as a huge advocate of regenerative agriculture, which we'll dig into today. Shauna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kristen. It's great to be here. So I know you spent the morning thinking about regenerative almonds. What was that discussion all about? Yeah, it's it's a really exciting space, regenerative, which I know we'll talk about soon. But today's conversation was about some research that was done by a group called Ecdysis, um, which is led by Jonathan Lundgren and someone who's a master's student, as I understand it, at UC Davis, who did some comparative um, benchmarking between regenerative farms and, and conventional farms and what they're seeing in terms of some of the, the practices the regenerative farmers are doing and the outcomes from, from that, um, soil health, biodiversity. So, uh, and then the farmers themselves are on the, the call as well to speak a little bit about their experience and what they do. So it was, it was like a nice two hour uh, deep dive into California almonds and the opportunities that we have to help change that landscape. So very exciting. And Shauna, what have the, the past six months looked like for you from a career perspective? Sounds like lots of changes recently. <laughs> yeah, this is like 2020. I, I, I feel like every day is a new year. So <laughs> it's been a lot of changes uh, between COVID and then career changes as well, which you alluded to. But well, let's see, this, you know, I've been at Simple Mills now for years just under three months. So I have a new role that I'm in. Uh, but prior to that, I was the head of sustainability for the National Organic Operating Unit at General Mills. Um, and I made the decision to, to change um, and left that initially, to be honest, to, to go and just do my own consulting and just kind of try and reorient myself in, in the space of, of the food system. But this opportunity came up with Simple Mills to um, help them establish their regenerative ag program and sustainability efforts and work. So I decided, hey, this is a great opportunity. Do this for a year. Um, and so with that, that's where I've been for almost three months now. So definitely some big career changes. I mean, COVID and then homeschooling and, <laughs> and then taking, a, you know, on moving from one job and then taking a new one. Um, six months, it's, it's hard to believe 
I don't even know what the six months brings us back to, but yes, it, it, a lot has happened in a short amount of time. And, and what's Simple Mills uh, and what are a few examples of their products? Yeah, so Simple Mills is a relatively new company started in 2012 by a woman named Caitlin Smith, who really actually came into starting this food company because she found that as she started to change her own diet, um, her health um, was feeling, she, she felt better about it. So she wanted to create uh, foods that would make people feel good. And so looking at the kinds of ingredients that were in foods that were maybe making people feel bad, she wanted to change that to what could make people feel good. So a lot of the ingredient bases um, are using non-grains, non-corn, non-soy. So things like almond flour and cassava flour, um, but also um, rich with um, seeds and, 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 and nuts um, as a way to kind of focus on nutrient density. So some of the products, she started off with a baking mix, which uh, like a muffin baking mix, with banana um, muffin baking mix is actually one of my favorites um, and extended into pancakes and other areas, but then crackers and cookies and most recently bars. So uh, different, different products and you can find them basically in the natural um, organic product sections, but relatively, relatively new company, but doing, doing really well and um, lots of growth potential. So it's been super exciting to, to be a part of it. And what are you tasked with in your new role there? Yeah, so it's great because it, it's really leveraging a lot of what I've been doing my entire career, uh, which is building um, really meaningful and, and um, high impact sustainability programs. And specifically, you know, Simple Mills is at this point in where they are as a company of kind of recognizing that, hey, the food system and the food world has this this big impact and and we want to be part of a positive impact. I mean, part of the mission of Simple Mills is to bring better food to people to help change the way people feel um, and change the way America eats, but then also recognizing that how that food is grown and, and um, and how it's made it really matters as well. And so for me, my role is to really come in and help stand that program up. Of how do we ensure that we have a sourcing strategy that really speaks to how that food is being grown and looking at ways that we develop relationships with farmers, the, the very start of the food chain, um, to really understand what's happening, but then also look for ways that we as a company can help incentivize that, those practices and that are regenerative, as well as transitioning to regenerative practices. So that's really what I'm, I'm there to do. And I have a fantastic team member and a great leadership team I'm working with. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively small company yet, so I can still kind of put my arms around it all and, and, and uh, really am excited about it. And, but really, it's how do we integrate this into the work that we're doing to um, contribute positively from, uh, from the farm to the final product. Tell us a bit more about what regenerative agriculture is and why it's so important to you. Yeah, so regenerative agriculture, it's, it's interesting because I feel like it's, it's a term that's in some ways becoming a bit of a buzzword these days. Maybe mm. it's just in my circles, it's a mm. bit of a buzzword. <laughs> but it's also an exciting new way of framing what is um, a problem that has been understood for quite some time, especially in, in food system circles. And that is that, you know, the, the way in which we farm um, and have farmed for many years has a really negative impact on, on the planet. So whether it's um, soil loss um, through um, high disturbance management practices like tillage and or chemical applications, 
uh, to the increasing amount of biodiversity loss because farms have such a big presence and um, sometimes we take out land that could be habitat otherwise and replace it with farmland and, and don't make it um, a suitable place for um, life above the ground. Um, also life below the ground, which is the soil connection. So there's these elements here of just like these kind of the, the negative, the degrading. So regenerative is kind of taking that and flipping that and saying, okay, we want to move from this negative into a positive. Um, and so regenerative agriculture is, is defined differently by different groups. But the way that I like to see it is it's, practices and principles that are designed to improve soil health, increase biodiversity, protect watersheds, and empower farming communities. Um, in, in many ways, I see this as how we are healing our relationship to the land um, and also acknowledging indigenous wisdom, which has for so long um, not been a part of um, how we do agriculture. And I think that's one of the opportunities with regenerative is there's a lot of knowledge that exists um, that we just need to tap into. So that's that's how I see it. And I, I really look at it as also um, oftentimes in, in agriculture and in food, we tend to be what I call prescriptive and um, don't do this and do do this. And it's oftentimes in terms of practices and practices have their place. And I see that as important, but I really hope that the way we are talking about regenerative, we can frame it in terms of the outcomes we seek to have which gives more flexibility to farmers in, in terms of how they might achieve those outcomes. So I, I see this as kind of three key outcomes of improving soil health, increasing biodiversity, um, and what I I call like economic resilience in, in farming communities. So that's that's kind of how I, I've been, you know, creating it for Simple Mills and also similarly to what we had done um, together at General Mills. But again, there are different ways that people uh, do to define it and articulate it, but that's also kind of the fun of being in the space right now is there's opportunities for everyone to contribute. I know that last year um, you had the well-deserved honor of being the annual uh, lecture at Blue Hill at Stone Barns for their Kirshenman uh, lecture series. And you mentioned during that lecture the devastating impacts that we've experienced due to our relentless focus on yield. Can you share a little bit more about what some of those impacts are? Yeah, so first of all, yeah, it was a, it was a great honor to, to be at Stone Barns. I mean, what a magnificent place, and, and Fred Kirshenman is one of my, my heroes as well. So uh, it was wonderful. But yeah, to that, to that point in terms of some of the, the negative impacts of kind of this like myopic focus on yield, uh, you know, I, I, I do want to kind of take a step back and say, you know, I think there was a time when, you know, food security really mattered. And still does, frankly, it's not, that's not a previous time, but very real to the U.S. in particular, where people couldn't get enough food to eat. And, and that was a case across the globe. And again, still is the case in, in many parts. But because of that, and because famine was so real, and people didn't know where they were going to get their next meals, a lot of agriculture in terms of like seed production, the systems that support the agricultural system and farmers focused on getting more and more yield, right? Get, get more food to feed more people. And, you know, oftentimes we'll hear too that we need to feed this growing population. Farmers need to feed, feed the world. And it, it is true, like, right, we are so dependent on others to feed us. And it's something that we should never forget. But with that narrow, narrow focus on yield, it came at a cost. It came at the cost of um, 
our environment. It came at the cost of soil. It came at the cost of biodiversity. And it came, frankly, at the cost of a lot of the livelihoods and farmers themselves who couldn't keep up with that, um, that treadmill. And so now that we're seeing we've had such a narrow focus on yield um, has led to some of these externalities. And also, like, if you start to dig into it, we've also bred seeds with yield in mind versus, for example, like what are the ecosystem impacts of this seed or what is the nutritional quality of this seed, which is also a big part of what we should be thinking about with the foods we eat. So that kind of narrow um, focus on yield and, and led to high mechanization and more what I'd say is kind of practices that don't um, enable kind of that more holistic ecosystem, ecologically minded landscape. And, and that's really what, you know, I think and so many others who are in this space um, want to address because we recognize that the health of the land is connected to the health of us. And we need to be looking at how we are incentivizing farmers to do practices that look beyond yield and also account for uh, people and planet as well. So traditionally, um, when we think about the triple bottom line, for example, in the food industry, and we're thinking about planet, people, and profit, and we think about it visually as a Venn diagram, and there's a sweet spot in the middle where there's some intersection, where there's overlap, where, for example, battling food waste is a win on all three fronts, as an example. But I know that your visual of the triple bottom line is different, and it's nested. Can you share more about about that? Yeah, you know, this is something that I really... Feel very strongly about and 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 certainly have learned too because I too used to present the triple bottom line in this Venn diagram um, perspective and the reason that I shifted it to this nested approach is because the more I studied the more I researched the more I talked to people it became very clear to me that everything that we do depends on our planet everything people do is connected to the planet and therefore all that we do and the decisions we make make need to be done in the context of our planetary boundaries and what we have here. And so in the nested one, I have planet at the base, people as the second, and profit as the third. And I put profit as the third and also smallest because it's nested, not because it's not important or the least important, but because people created the system as we know it with that profit. It's the, the way in which we have actually created business, which is, you know, tends to be profit driven, um, was people created and everything we um, do as people um, kind of drives that profit, but the profit also drives what we do as people and drives the impacts on the planet. So it's this very, it's a, it's a virtuous you know, cycle, if you will, and it each kind of self-reinforces the other, but without paying attention to the planet and the decisions that we're making on profit as it relates to the planet, we're sometimes looking at things very narrowly and not without um, the potential boundaries that we might be hitting and the, the limits to which we can do something without there being um, a boomerang effect. So that's, that's why I, I changed that diagram to be triple bottom line to, to really force the conversation so that we can understand everything in context of the planet and then make decisions that hopefully will look to benefit and create positive synergies um, versus the negative ones that can sometimes be done when we do things outside of that planetary context. 
There was a recent Wall Street Journal article called 10 Food Trends of the Next Decade. And, and they mentioned, I know you, you've seen this article, but I know they mentioned, um, you know, that that basically as the term, they say as the term organic, you know, continues to be diluted, evolved eaters will instead seek out ingredients labeled regenerative, grown and raised using methods that improve the soil, carbon, capture, capturing carbon and encouraging biodiversity. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, well, I think that the the first part where it talks about um, organic being diluted, I, I do I do take some issue with that, <laughs> only because you know, well, frankly, I know a lot of the people who created the organic standard and the intentions behind it, and the barriers too with creating a standard as we know it today to build it into a, a policy and regulatory um, environment. And while organic by no means is a panacea, it doesn't, it doesn't solve everything, there's a lot of regenerative built in organic, right? So organic farmers do things like crop rotations. In fact, they have to. And a lot of farmers do diverse crop rotations, which is a part of a more regenerative system. Um, organic farmers also cannot use synthetic fertilizers and they avoid most pesticides and, and um and herbicides, which has an, uh, a negative effect on, on soil as well. So, so part of it is, yes, we do need to move toward this regenerative. I think what I will say, though, is I envision a world where we can look at things more together, such that organic and people who choose not to go certified organic can all be advancing regenerative. And I think, you know, one of the things I've certainly learned in working with farmers is that, you know, farmers come at their farming management practices from different walks of life. Some are brand new, some are coming from generations of management practices, some are trying to break the mold, some are just trying to um, get by. And so with that, the ways in which farmers will enter in, certification may or may not be a viable option for them. And frankly, some farmers don't really want certification. They don't want to have more, but you know, kind of uh, asks uh, for them. But I think that knowing that knowing that's the case and knowing that regenerative is really a, a spectrum of practices and, a, you know, trying to go to those outcomes that I mentioned earlier, they're going to come in in different ways. And so regenerative, yes, and inclusive of organic, but inclusive of, of all farmers is, is how I would like to, to see, to see that kind of highlighted in the Wall Street Journal piece. And how has the pandemic impacted your supply chain work at Simple Mills this year? Yeah, you know, this is, um, it is an interesting time for food companies and across the food system, the co you know, COVID's impacted companies differently. In the case of consumer products companies like Simple Mills, we, we our demand is, is high. And, you know, this is in part, obviously, because people are not going out to restaurants. Um, people are eating from home and they need to buy goods that they can, you know, cook or snack from um, in their own kind of out of their own pantry. So as a business, we're doing very well. However, um, it's also been a lot of logistical demands as, you know, you're trying to get from, you know, the farm point to the making sure that you, you can get food from the farm, crops are harvested, and then to the manufacturer, the food is made and get that on shelf. And each one of those steps along the way has people that 
oftentimes work in groups, farmers tend to have less of that with what depends on the cropping system. So part of it is you are seeing, you know, some in cases we've seen the food system where there have been outbreaks um, that have occurred and, and where people have to concentrate in order to, to actually create the food. But um, meat industry being one of them, but we're not in meat. And so we haven't had that. And so I think we've been very fortunate to to benefit from more people wanting to to, to buy our foods, um, and and also it's giving us a chance to to, to show um, you know people also what I what we've seen as well as people are starting to pay more attention to to their health um, in, in part because we've also seen you know COVID is um, it, it has it doesn't it it has no boundaries in terms of who it's going to go after, but there's a, a higher resilience we see in people who have you know. Earn better health, um, and so with that, people are paying attention to the foods they eat, and and and, and they're looking to companies like Simple Mills to help them with that. A decade ago, you started at Annie's, um, whose products many folks might be familiar with, such as salad dressings or, you know, the mac and cheese with the bunny on the box or the bunny-shaped graham crackers, among many other products. And you were the first person there to have a sustainability role. What were a few highlights of what you accomplished there? Yeah, you know, coming into Annie's was was such a such a ride um, on so many levels because you know when I started, I was the first person in the role, so there hadn't been this existing infrastructure um, for sustainability. But that said, there were certainly aspects that were already integrated into the work and from a sustainability perspective. So coming in, it was kind of kind of identifying everything that we had already, but then kind of putting it all together and saying, okay, where do we go? Where do we take this next? And what I loved about Annie's is it was very, um, it was very entrepreneurial in nature. At the time when I joined, it was private and it was, it was private equity um, ownership, but still private, but there were also plans to go um, have an exit plan. And so within two years of me joining, we went public, which was a huge, huge um, ride. I mean, we were one of the best IPOs of 2012. And I'll never forget that mac and cheese. <laughs> you know, usually it goes to the tech companies in terms of the big um, success stories from that perspective. And there it was mac and cheese getting getting its heyday. So uh, with with that, and even the run up to going public, there was a lot of scrappy action. I mean, it, moving quickly, agility was um, really important. And, and just, you know, making sure that you're on top of everything, communicating with all the right people, um, and, and building that out. But those were some some great experiences. And, and of course, being public, as uh, the company we were and the size we were at that time, which was, I want to say, gosh, I know it was publicly reported, but it was probably like 200, um, 200 million. It wasn't huge. So especially relative to other companies, it was, it was challenging too. And, and so you end up having to do a lot more focus on reporting to meet SEC requirements and everything else, which was challenging. And so um, it, it, it had its, it's had its ups and downs. And then by 2014, um, we got the offer from General Mills and were acquired as, as part of that um, as well. So a lot of different changes, even in those first few years of being Annie's from helping to prep to go public to, to becoming part and acquired by a larger company. So a lot of different different learnings along the way. <laughs> and, and when that acquisition uh, by General Mills happened in 2014, how did your, your role and your priorities shift at all? Yeah, it was really interesting. So 2014 is the year we were acquired. And, and you know, when General Mills came in, uh, we had probably, well, there we had, in terms of people-wise, 
probably about 100 people in, in the Berkeley office. And uh, we also had another plant that we had also just acquired. So it was actually quite a, quite a few people in, in its own plant. So there were some initial changes just to, to you know, typically what happens, especially with an acquisition, is when there's redundancies or, you know, people doing the same jobs, you, you, know, you know, they they find a, a way in which like, okay, we gotta, there will be some turnover amongst people. So that certainly happened for us. And initially in the first year we had that, but, but my role was relatively unique in sustainability. And so with that, uh, there was a lot of opportunity just to, to share and talk with, with their General Mills and sustainability team, as well as some of the people who were coming in and joining the Annie's team from marketing um, and, and from sourcing. So it was a way in which to share what we had learned through our work um, as an organic brand and, and then also learning from General Mills in terms of what had worked for them and how they operate at scale. And then after the first year, year and a half, then we, we kind of had more integration across the board. And, and we had a, um, a marketing person who came on who was really keen on figuring out what he could do um, to, to really help the Annie's brand and really build it out. And, and he and I had a lot of fun together along with another marketer um, to really, in, in many ways, just really cement the importance of Annie's in, in the mainstream space to really help to grow organic. That became a huge point of ours to do together and, and really leverage the power of scale to bring Annie's to more households through, through the distribution network that General Mills had. And so there was a lot of positives, a lot of wins that came from, from that, from the acquisition and, and frankly, from the people that came from General Mills. And so I, I, it's something that I look back on fondly in terms of what we were able to do um, to help bring the brand to, to where it is today. And by the end of your time at General Mills, you were not just overseeing the sustainability of the Annie's brand, but a whole portfolio. What were the other brands that you were overseeing uh, in terms of sustainability? Yeah, so so when um, the woman um, named Carla Vernon came in, she had been a, a longtime General Mills employee, and she came in to um, replace John Forker, who had been the CEO and president the acquisition and then he stayed on for several years afterwards so Carla kind of was the first person to come in to lead Annie's and as and then an additional three brands so basically under her leadership uh we we General Mills moved three other brands into the kind of we called it we ended up calling the National Organic Operating Unit but we also called it the Triple Bottom Line Operating Unit um externally and internally uh, and internally initially externally eventually so those brands included Annie's, Epic, uh, Muir Glen and Cascadian Farm and New York Land and Cascadian Farm have actually been a part of the General Mills family for, oh gosh, I want to say since it was, it was like over a, a you know, 20, maybe 2000 time period. Maybe it was 20, I can't remember the, the years when, when those brands were, became a part, but they've been in General Mills for quite some time. Whereas Epic was actually an acquisition that came about just after the Annie's acquisition in 2016. And so those four brands together had high, high mission, um, aspirations, very values um, aligned. And, and all of them had founders that were uh, a major point of differentiation uh, for the brands. And so bringing those all together made a lot of sense. And um, Carla did a, a fantastic job really in helping to shape uh, how each of them should be approached, but then also together as a single operating unit. 
Shauna, can you talk a little bit about some of the wins you had in terms of sustainability messaging on some of the, for example, some of the Annie's product packaging? Yeah. So this really comes back to the relationship I mentioned with the, the head of marketing from General Mills. It was a man named Dan Stangler um, and, a, and a woman named Allie Kelly. And when we started working together, we we just started talking about, okay, what are the, all the great things that we have already, right, through Annie's? And then this was really the conversations we were starting to have um, on kind of, you call it organic 2.0 when regenerative was starting to kind of make this um, its way into the conversation in, in our halls. And we we're looking at like, how do we communicate what we know already within organic to be a benefit? And then how do we take this further to connect it to the farmers? And so, you know, we, I mentioned Epic came in as a, a part of the General Mills family in 2016, and they had been working um, as well on regenerative and from a, from a grazing and, and, um, and livestock perspective. And so there's all these great synergies that were happening and the conversations were starting to happen with the then chief sustainability officer, Jerry Lynch, and myself and a few others in sourcing um, as well to, to think about what we could be doing um, from the sourcing side. And then with my marketing team, it was like, well, how do we actually talk about this? And so the very first product that we launched from Annie's was a, a limited edition um, two products, um, the honey bunny grams and a mac and cheese, where we did identity preserved um, sourcing for crops from two farmers in Montana. And the beautiful thing about the work is that one, we talked about the farmers, we highlighted them on the pack, uh, we, we talked about the practices that they were doing. And on this limited edition one, we, we actually had it where half of the box was um, soil. And so you could, and you could see all the roots and the mycorrhizal fungi and the microbes as part of it. So it's a very different package um, than the, the rest of it would be. Uh, and so, and then we talked about the role of farming as it relates to climate change and, and, and carbon sequestration. And, and then again, just thinking about these farmers and what they were practicing and what they were doing, they were organic farmers in Montana. Uh, Nate Powell and um, Nate Powell Palm and Casey Bailey, and in each of them are just amazing human beings um, and amazing farmers in so many ways. But we had this opportunity to really talk about them and what they were were doing, and we we found them thanks to our sourcing team, and we had a fantastic sourcing team who helped to make it all come together because it was really changing what is the traditional supply chain. So instead of kind of these kind of more opaque and transactional based activities, we were all about like, how do we cultivate relationships? How do we set contract terms that are, are beneficial, mutually beneficial to farmers and to, to us as a business? And then how do we take that, make it into this identity preserved product and then talk about it as a way to elevate what we know to be so important in terms of the food landscape and, and farming and agriculture. So we kind of tied all these pieces together. That was our version 1.0. And we learned a lot from that. The, the ups and the downs and, and the, the challenges, quite honestly, of doing an identity preserved um, limited edition pack. Because we basically took everything the farmers harvested and put those into the boxes and then there was no more. <laughs> so not, not the typical ways in which you run products, but it was great lessons learned. And that led to 
creating two new products, uh, mac and cheese, both of them this time, with a more expanded group of farmers, also in Montana, and still identity preserved, but ways in which we could talk about it. And we kind of scaled back the, the soil focus on the pack and made it more of a, a, a mac and cheese bowl, but then used the words of um, this mac helps protect our planet uh, as a way to communicate the differentiation and, and value that the, the product was providing. So a couple of really fun examples that we were able to do, but you know, it all came down to this, what I call like the trifecta, the perfect trifecta of this, you know, sustainability, sourcing and marketing working so closely together in partnership to bring the best of each skills forward in order to come to the product on shelf and, and hopefully a good win and something that the consumer wants. Can you share a little more about why biodiversity has been and is a priority at General Mills and uh, maybe some of the initiatives, for example, some of the cool work uh, with bees? Yeah, you know, the biodiversity work for for General Mills, you know, and this is, of course, I'm I'm going to be speaking from the the past in this one because it's no longer in my my present day. But, you know, a lot of the the work that from a regenerative ag perspective, we felt very strongly that biodiversity needed to be built into the regenerative agriculture framework. And so that's one of the key outcomes identified in biodiversity being life that we need and it being both above and, and below ground. So that's, you know, something that was um, was built into the framework. But there was some great work done by a woman named Beth Robertson Martin, who really helped to, even before the Regenetic framework, to elevate biodiversity and to, to integrate that um, as a key part of the General Mills um, uh, kind of sourcing uh, areas and really thinking about to how best to do that and through supporting a group like Xerces Society. Um, so I, I can't remember the, the dollars, but it was several million dollars um, supporting the um, implementation of um, basically, uh, you know, corridors for um, habitat. So planting habitat across um you know, the U.S., I believe, is the primary focus. And this is where I'm, I'm not going to remember all the details behind it because it's been a while. But that was something, that partnership was really critical to um, advancing the work and, and making sure that uh, partnering with farmers and some of that was done in the supply shed regions of brands like Muir Glen uh, and Cascadian Farm, but then also more broadly, I believe that Cheerios was involved as well um, in other parts of the country. So the, the partnership with Xerces was really critical to helping to advance that. And I believe it's still ongoing at this point too. So um, they were able to do a multi-year contract with Xerces. So Xerces really had that um, commitment and, and knowing that they could have the funds to keep doing the work year over year. We'll add this to the show notes, but for anyone who can't wait for that, how do you spell Xerces? Oh, yes. X. I'm like, I got to look it up myself now. <laughs> um, it's a X-E-R-C-E-S. Cool. And speaking of unpronounceable things, uh, Kernza, K-E-R-N-Z-A, um, seems to be a hot button topic recently. What is it and what did you do with it at General Mills? Yeah, so Kernza is a, a long root um, grain that was developed by the Land Institute. So the Land Institute is, so basically it's a perennial grain, so long-rooted perennial grain, which means that you don't have to replant it every year. So a lot of grains are what we call annual. We, we plant them um, and you 
harvest them, and then you have to plant them again the following season in order to get the grain again. Whereas a perennial, as you plant it, and the ideal is that you don't have to plant again for several years. Now, this is kind of the work in progress when it comes to Kernza and, and what the Land Institute is doing. The Land Institute was started by a gentleman by the name of Wes Jackson, who really saw um, well before so many of us and well before the current regenerative movement that the, the practices and the tillage um, and these kind of annual um, crops that we have were really destructive to, to the landscape. And he wanted to think bigger than that and to look at how we could have more of a perennialized system so that we weren't using these destructive tillage practices that led to soil erosion that yet led to soil organic matter loss. Um, and, you know, all these other negative impacts that we've seen from, from the from the plow. And so Kernza is one of the first crops, I believe, to, to come to, to commercialized market. And it's, you know, based on, on the, the work that the Land Institute did, they started working on the grain, I want to say like 20 years ago. So part of it with all this kind of plant and seed breeding is it takes a lot of time and, and a lot of trial and error because you have to like do selective breeding and you got to plant it, you got to trial it, see if it works, and then you do it again and again and again. And so these plant breeders are, they spend so much time just in terms of these trial and error. And so, but after 20 years, the, the currents of crop had gotten to a point where like, okay, we can, we've, we've got something here and we want to try putting this into market. We want to get more farmers to plant it. And so the, there were a couple different companies that were interested in creating the product, Cascadian Farm being one of them. And this really aligned well with the Cascadian Farm brand and really in thinking about farming and farming practices. And so the team at Cascadian Farm wanted to create um, a product. And so there a lot of time was done on the, the research and development side to do that. And we came up with a plan. We had it. We were going to launch a cereal using Kernza grain. And um, when it came time to harvesting the crop, there was such a tremendous yield loss that basically there was no crop to commercialize into a product. <laughs> it was so devastating and so sad. But this is also the realities of farming day, and this happens. So the the good news is is that Cascadian Farm Team worked really hard and said we're not going to let this like take away from the opportunity and ended up coming up with um, kind of, again, another kind of a limited edition, but uh, a, crop, uh, a, a box that instead of selling it on retail shelves, um, instead people could donate. And through that donation, get a box of this cereal that was we didn't have a whole lot of. And the funds that were raised through the donations would go toward the Land Institute to continue to, to support the work. So um, all in all, still a good story. The Kernza um, cereal was delicious. And, you know, there's more work being done now to, to continue seeing what, what are the other opportunities. But a big kind of learning from that was that the, the farmers that were planting the Kernza Part of the reason for that kind of yield, uh, the, the negative yield hit, was that um, the farmers were planting the kerns on more marginalized land, so land that wasn't very good to begin with, because they it was a risk as they were doing it, and so getting the farmers to even um, incorporate better farming management practices was a key uh, lesson learned that needed to happen in order for to give Kernza a chance in the field itself. So some good practices um, 
some good learnings that came from that and, and work that continues to this day now with the Land Institute as they work with farmers to, to bring Kernza um, more to market. So you can find it. I know that uh, Patagonia also does um, Long Root Ale is a beer that they do that incorporates Kernza. So that's another place you can find it. And there's some restaurants who have used it in their bread production using Kernza. So um, I, I'm, I'm sure there will be more to come, but that is a little bit about Kernza and the story behind it. <laughs> is, is it Millennial? Is that the San Francisco restaurant that was featuring? That? I think they don't exist anymore. No, I think. The, the Perennial. The oh, Perennial, perennial sorry. Yep, perennial, yep, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep, I've eaten that bread. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> so you mentioned Patagonia. So Patagonia Provisions is the is the food um, arm of Patagonia. Um, and then, of course, Organic Valley, the dairy cooperative is also doing a lot with regenerative ag. Are there any other companies that you see now as leaders in this space? Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely becoming more and more where I'm seeing the name popping up. And it's interesting because, you know, the the brands that have been you mentioned Patagonia was one of the first, uh, you know, I know that um, Happy Family has done a line as well and their, their baby food. Dr. Bronner's is another one um, that's been really um, supporting this work and connecting to farmers. Uh, Nature's Path too has had some, I've seen White Leaf Provisions and Quinn most recently. I know that they've been, um, and I just spoke with Christy recently, that they're also launching into this space as well. Annie's, of course, Epic. But then you've also seen bigger company names. Of course, General Mills being a bigger name, and you have brands like Annie's and Epic Cascadian Farm is part of that. But also like Danone um, is doing uh, some work in this area too. And just two weeks ago at Climate Week, uh, two other companies uh, popped on in terms of doing the regenerative work, Cargill being one and Walmart um, was another. So yes, we are seeing it more and more. And the brands I mentioned earlier, like there, there's actually products coming out. Um, so that's kind of a point of differentiation. But it's interesting just to see the term being used, um, regenerative, being a regenerative company, using regenerative practices in agriculture seeing these larger companies start to, to, to look for ways that they can participate as well. So speaking of climate, you also spent two years on the board of the Climate Collaborative. Uh, tell us about that organization's mandate. Yeah, so the Climate Collaborative came about um, really in response to actually one of the women that founded Happy Family um, and some of her... Uh, kind of feelings of like, we need to do something more in the natural food um, product industry about climate change. Like this is, this is becoming too real and, and we can do something about it. And so she, along with um, the, the people at One Step Closer, OC, OSC2, and then Sustainable Food Trade Association kind of all came together and said, we need to stand up a way to kind of basically create a platform for the natural products industry to engage on climate change. So just like your, you know, the industry came together and helped to stand up the organic standard um, as we know it today, this is a way for us to come together and say climate change is real, climate change is, is important, and we as food companies can and should do something about it and to really take um, an active leadership role in doing so. So Climate Collaborative um, was launched at Expo West, and I can't remember if it was 2017. I think it 
think it was 2017. There was a lot of work that was kind of done within the prep process for it. But it was launched then with the idea of like, the more we can galvanize companies in the space, those who come to Expo West, which is this big natural products trade show that brings like over 80, 90,000 people together, hundreds, thousands of companies from all over the world come to it. And, and have that be a kind of space to, to bring more people in. And the, the way in which it was first launched, I still remember the very first one, you know, there were, there was a good number of people in the room, but by the next year, it like had doubled. And by the, like the last year, um, when we all were there together, which wasn't 2020, but 2019, there were over five or 600 people in the room. And it just was a huge, huge showing um, of support and engagement uh, across the, the natural product, the natural um, product sector to say, yes, we want to do something. Yes, we're committed and we're going to figure this out together. So there, there are nine key kind of issue areas, if you will, uh, that companies can commit to, to taking action on it as it relates to climate change, agriculture being one, packaging being another, um, and seven others that are that are all can, can contribute to it. But ways in which companies say, yeah, I'm going to make a commitment in these areas, I will take action. And then coming back and sharing progress um, and celebrating wins along the way. But it really was to create this community um, of engagement and activism to, to drive um, change and, and help address climate change. It's somewhat abstract for a lot of people that there's a connection between what we eat and climate change or climate change and the increasing frequency and, and severity of natural disasters. If you had, you know, 30 seconds in, in an elevator um, with some random person who was not at all involved in the food industry, um, how would you articulate that connection in a way that would make sense? Yeah. Uh, so the the short of it is, is, you know, what we eat matters and it matters because we think about it in terms of our health and our body. And that definitely is one point that it matters, but it matters even more in terms of how it's grown. And I think what will surprise some people is that a third of greenhouse gas emissions come from food production. And of that, up to 80% of that um, is coming from agriculture. So the role of farming and the role of agriculture is huge. And it's, it's just a, a further testament to, um, you know, we are what we eat in so far as, um, you know, we are a part of this bigger world and, and the ways in which we farm and the ways um, in which we get that food into ultimately our bodies, it really does have a big difference. And so when you think about the fact that we eat every day, um, in most cases, you know, people are eating multiple times a day because we snack in addition to having meals. So the number of touch points we have with food and therefore with agriculture is significant. And, and so that's in part kind of what contributes to that number being so high with up to a third of greenhouse gases coming from food production and, and so much of it is ag. So to me, it's, it's really, that's the take-home point is like, it does matter. And, but I think the bigger take-home point is while there's this kind of this negative because it's like, oh, greenhouse gases, we don't want to be contributing greenhouse gases. Um, the good news is that agriculture is also one of the biggest potential solutions to climate change. Because when we start to change the way we farm, we actually can have positive benefit to the climate and to the land. And I always love to reference um, 
Project Drawdown because they have done some incredible research in terms of the solutions to help address global warming and climate change. And what's so amazing is that within their research that they did, eight of the top 20 solutions are agriculture-based. And so that to me is, is hope, right? That, that puts it in a nutshell of like, yep, it does matter what you eat. And I really hope we can start asking more questions about that. But on the flip of it, man, when you do start to ask those questions and you start to find farmers who are doing these amazing things, like let's hold them up and celebrate them because they hold the keys to the possibility of change in a positive way. So um, that's probably much longer than the elevator pitch you asked for. <laughs> that's how I package it. It's <laughs> problem, solution. <laughs> Awesome. And, you know, speaking of sort of positive stories, you know, a lot of the discussions that we have, especially in the food industry around meat and especially beef, focuses on how much they contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, which is true. Um, but can you share a positive story of the other perspective of how um, in the right circumstances that animals can positively impact the environment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the short elevator pitch of it's the how, not the cow. Um, <laughs> so what that means is how that animal is raised is going to determine whether that animal is having a positive or negative impact. And it's true that a lot of the ways in which animals are raised are um, there's, you know, a actually most, let's just take cattle, you know, beef as one example. In the start of the life, most beef cattle actually are raised on pasture and grass-based systems. But comes a point where they move into this kind of like stocking finishing phase where they're fed a lot of grains and the ways in which those grains are produced um, and like grain, soy and whatever else it might be are very intensive and, and high energy fossil fuel based energy use. So they're fed that. And then in addition to that, they're usually in what's this kind of confined animal feeding operation. So a lot of animals in a, in a pretty small space, um, usually dirt, there's absolutely no grass and, um, creates a, a lot of um, manure um, or poop, you know, and that is all concentrated in one space. And so that contributes a lot to what we're seeing in terms of the, the methane emissions um, as well. And so when you flip that to a farm that is practicing regenerative, and I'll use the example of White Oak Pastures and Will Harris, because um, he's someone we worked with when I was working with the Epic brand, and he's out of Georgia. And he has a completely different approach to, to raising animals. So in addition to cattle, he, he raises about 10 other different species, um, whether it's poultry and, or, or um, pigs. And he has a, this synergistic system where he rotates them, first of all, so the animals rotate on pastures. And through that process of rotation, they're pooping, but they're moving, so they're, the nutrient cycle is much more balanced, and and the, and, the, and the, he's also using um, native grasslands or native grasses um, to feed. And then he also will bring the chickens on um, after the cows. They help to peck and further break down um, the poop that's on the ground, but then also is another part of the synergistic cycle. And so it is a, a much more um, diverse set of animals and a much more diverse set of grasses that helps lead to um, greater um, kind of building of the, the soil organic matter um, through these practices that he's employing and this diversity in, these, in this rotational um, management. It's really the nutrient cycle that's in balance. So that's a, a large part of those management practices uh, that he and his, his family are employing um, at White Oak Pastures. So just the, the various ways in which animals, um, you know, I, one of the, the best quotes I can think of is, 
you know, and it was Gabe Brown, who's another one of these um, curo farmers that I, I love to, to learn from and, and talk about. But, you know, there is no place in nature where animals don't exist. And so with that, you realize, and I realize, like the importance of animals as, as part of any healthy ecosystem. And with that, they have an essential role to play. And, and so we need animals um, to be a part of a healthy ecosystem. We actually won't have healthy ecosystems without animals. And so the ways in which those animals are, are raised and um, on, the, on the farm really does matter. And there's a way to do it. And that's what these leading farmers have been able to show. Shauna, if we had uh, asked you as a kid when you were growing up on a, a farm in rural uh, Saskatchewan, Canada, that you'd end up doing the work you're doing now, changing food systems, would that have surprised you? Yes. <laughs> I think very much so. Um, you know, I, I look back on, on my growing up and, you know, I am so grateful for uh, what I had, and frankly, also what I didn't have. I think oh, that's. I think you know when I when I think about it, it was hard living um, growing up on a farm. I'm one of seven kids too, so uh, you know financially we we it, we struggled, and so I think you know as a kid it was um, my my thought was how do I get off this farm and how do I get to a place where you know I actually will be able to do more than eke out a living. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do know that that background also, you know, I, I learned so much about just being in nature and the beauty of nature um, and, and the volatility that comes too with, with nature and weather and everything else that comes with it. But it's, uh, you know, farming did shape me in, in so many ways. And, and I think with that, it, it, ha- it makes so much sense as to how I ended up where I am today. And, and I'm so grateful for it, but the path was certainly not linear. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely came from from different angles, but you know, it, it's it, it made me appreciate, it, and it still does make me appreciate what I what I had without my knowledge um, of growing up on a farm. But then also just like ooh, how important it is for us to be continuing to to look to people who do steward the land as the heroes of this movement, um, so that we can help change the rural landscape for the better. I think that's, that's something that I really, I take to to heart because it's, it's so not the current case where we look at food and we look at farmers. And so ways in which we start to change that is to understand them as people, understand them as um, humans, just like we see the people, uh, our neighbors down the street, but then to, to realize just how incredibly important they are to how we live to our ability to eat without farmers, we wouldn't have food. And so that's something, you know, like thank a farmer is, is a, a phrase I hope that everyone can, can take away because it's without the farmers, we wouldn't, we wouldn't eat. And most people don't raise their own food. And if they are so lucky to have a little backyard space or raised bed or whatever else, it may be like, that's awesome. But um, still the vast majority of us um, rely on farmers to, to bring the food to our tables. So I hope that that's something I can continue to contribute to as I move on in my career. 
so you 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 ended up leaving Canada. You studied business at Wharton as an undergrad. Uh, then you got your master's in the agriculture, food, and environment program at the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts, which is, of course, how we met because I was also at Tufts uh, studying international affairs at the Fletcher School. Tell us more about the ag, food, and environment program, and why was that such a great fit for your interests? Yeah, that was such a fantastic program at Tufts, and I'm so, so grateful for it. When I was looking to go back to, to grad school, you know, I'd come from having done an undergrad in business at Wharton and was, you know, this was the time period. I mean, but the books that were really seminal at the time that I had read, Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser and Food Politics by Marion Nessel, which you probably remember as well. And, and at the time when I was, those were the books I'd read between um, undergrad and, and graduate school. So when I was looking for my graduate school program, I wanted, I knew I wanted something that was going to have a food, bent, a food focus. And what I was seeing at that time were very, like there were schools of public health that had the health side of it. But, um, and then there was the NYU, New York um, University had a food studies program actually under Marion Nessel, which was interesting, but it, it wasn't quite getting to the egg side, which is really what I, I knew was so important and was needed to be connected. And so the Tufts program was, this fantastic combination housed within the nutrition school, but a program that was specifically focused on agriculture, food, and environment. So the policy and the science of food and the importance of agriculture. And this was, again, like I mentioned, housed within the nutrition school. So there were others who were in the nutrition school doing um, uh, like the registered dietitian um, classes, or there's the, there was the, nutrition communications and food policy, more of an international focus. And so it was a really great opportunity to meet people who had, were all interested in food, but perhaps coming from it, different angles about it. And at the time, I was probably, I think I was the only one in my class because we were a small class who was really interested in the business connection. And that was the whole thing where I really believed and still do that business has a central role to play in helping make things better. And I wanted to, to really hone my subject matter expertise on the science and policy of food and agriculture, which is what the program brought. So um, led by Kathleen Merrigan um, and her associate at the time, Willie Lockritz, they, they really developed this program that, that gave that foundational um, basis for students to, to understand what it what the current system looks like um and i think when i think about the science side and then the policy side i mean policy is huge when it comes to our food system and oftentimes overlooked so being able to take that learning and then bring that to a business um it was a huge gift at the time and and still is to this day and i, I think the when i look at the program now and i think of some of the students in the program and um, there were actually a lot more who were interested on the business side, which I'm really encouraged by. Um, but still people going into policy just as before and people going to nonprofits in the science world as before. So it's a, it's a beautiful multidisciplinary uh, program that I certainly benefited so much from. And, and I'm really just glad to see it continue to, to prosper today. In the same Wall Street Journal article that I noted earlier on food trends for the future, um, another trend it mentioned was family dinners and that they're on the rise. Of course, 
you know, that's a whole separate conversation of the fact that family dinners are uh, considered a trend and that um, <laughs> it's even a novelty or whatever. Yeah. However, um, you know, y- you and I both know that eating together is something that your family was doing long before COVID lockdowns. And I've been fortunate over the years to enjoy a number of amazing meals at your house. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about dinner at your household? Yeah. So, I mean, if it's not clear from now, um, I hope it is. I, I love food. <laughs> I married someone who loves food as well. And we we both love to cook. Uh, although I think he does a fair much more of it these days than I do. But, um, you know, when as we came together as a couple and and then when we had kids in particular, we recognized just you know, how important it was for us to be planning our meals. And so while my husband, Lewis and I, we, we have always sat down together um, to have dinner together. That is just like a fundamental belief that each of us have is, is we always come together at the end of the day. And whereas before kids, we would have like two to three hour, din- you know, long di- dinners. <laughs> it's a little shorter these days, but we always come around the table. And I have uh, two beautiful children, nine and five. And uh, dinner is a a ritual. There's no question that we will always sit down for dinner. And that was certainly the case before COVID and and continues. um, And so that's not a change at all for us. But the the way in which the food gets to the table is probably the bigger (laughs) question because it's also like, well, how do you actually get the food? You're both working and the kids are at their school. So one of the ways in which we make it happen is we meal plan. And we started meal planning in actually part because we started supporting CSAs um, when we moved to the, uh, to the Bay Area from, from Boston. So this was like 15 years ago. And CSA is uh, community supported agriculture. So basically where uh, we buy a share from a farm each week uh, and that how we get our, our vegetables. And so we get uh, ours from a place called River Dog Farms for vegetables, and we get our fruit from a place called Frog Hollow Farms. And I, I now pick them up. They used to be delivered actually to my workplace, but now I pick them up directly from the farmer's markets under COVID. And we, um, that's what our, our, our vegetables are for the, for the week. And then we meal plan using those vegetables. Like, okay, we need to use these vegetables. Here's, here's what we have. And, and so then we go into our cookbooks and online and we find recipes. And every day of each week is lined up in terms of what we're going to cook and whatever doesn't come in the box, we go out and we, we get and we supplement. So we pick that up from our local grocery stores to make sure we have it. So basically everything that we need to cook for the night is that we have it in our, in our pantry and in our refrigerator. So when it comes down to cooking time, we have it all, we make it up um, and then we have dinner together each night. So it's a, you know, perhaps sounds elaborate, but it's a system that's really worked for us. And, and, uh, and it, it's, it's, I, you know, I, I, I'm always just a, glad that this is something that, that has been able to come together. Sometimes we, we plan um, and we do meal prep on the weekends, depending on how long it will take. Um, so we've tried different kind of variations on it as well, but uh, getting the dinner on the table to feed hungry children on time <laughs> is always the, the goal. So starting that up and, and making sure we can sit down um, together and then enjoying a meal and catching up on the day, um, even in COVID, even though we're all, you know, working and schooling from the house, we're still not catching up necessarily. So it's our chance to, to have a conversation and um, bites between meals and just having a wonderful time together. And to be clear, you're all eating the same meal, correct? <laughs> yes. Yes. That is definitely, um, 
there is no what we call short order cooking um, in our house. So yes, the, the kids eat the same thing as the adults. And this was actually a, a very strong philosophical belief um, that both my husband and I had in that we didn't, we, we wanted our kids to eat the same foods that we did. Um, we believe that, um, you know, that in fact, the more that you change things to accommodate it, the, the more picky the eater becomes. And so by introducing foods that some might say are not what kids want, um, we found that to be, it's not what they don't want. It's just that their palate hasn't matured yet. And that's actually something proven through science where it takes sometimes 15, 20 times of trying a food before you'll actually start to like it. It's just the maturation of the, the tongue. And this is something I picked up when I lived in France, because when I, I lived in France before, I, I, I just so um, admired that there was the, the kids and the adults ate always the same thing. It was very different than the American experience. And there's a book I, I read before, actually, when I first had my, when I had my first daughter, it's called French Kids Eat Everything. And she has these rules in the book. And one of them is, is kind of like no short order cooking um, so that everyone eats the same thing. And that's actually a way that, one, it makes mealtime a lot more pleasant. Two, it's a lot less work, <laughs> whoever's cooking it. And and three, you start to really, um, that's, that's how you diversify what's what's on your plate and diversify what's in your, what's in your belly as well. In addition to prioritizing family dinners, um, are there any other practices that you follow in terms of wellness and self-care? Yeah, I, you know, I am a, a big believer. I've always loved um, getting outside and exercising. I mean, I think it's one of these things where I'm, you know, especially now, um, all the more so. It's just, I mean, I, I just getting out and, and, and getting physical um, is something that makes me feel really good. That's kind of an element of, of recharge that I have. And, and I think that, you know, that's right now, I, I live in the Bay Area, as I mentioned, and we've had these smoke days where it's actually made it harder to go outside, which now when it is, and today's a good day, I, I try and take advantage of that as much as I can. So even sometimes taking working meetings, walking outside is, is something I do just to kind of give myself that fresh air um, when I can. And yeah, I think, you know, other things are like listening to music, um, you know, and you can do that while you're walking or you can use the food on its own, but I always find myself energized. Um, that not even any type of genre music, it doesn't really matter, but it always makes me kind of gives me a, a lift. Um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, and reading, reading is another one I use as a way to kind of put myself in to a, a, a different space and capture the just thoughts in my head. So yeah, those are a few, few different things. Speaking of reading, what are three books that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah. So I, love to read. And so the book I actually most recently read came actually out of a work um, ask. And so one of the things about Simple Mills is Simple Mills is a really data-driven culture. And so uh, this book that was recommended was called, it's called Positivity by a woman named Barbara Fredrickson. And it's all about basically the the positive spiral of is, is, you know, that will change your life. And there's a lot of science that she's done behind it. But, you know, part of it is just knowing that we have emotions and, you know, we have negative and positive emotions. And the more positive we have, the more we will put ourselves into a thriving state. And I just, I love the book. I love the story. I love the ways in which she um, 
kind of captured it. And uh, that's, so that's one book I'd recommend. That's like just recently um, some one that I, I enjoyed. Another book that I read and especially um, it's becoming all the more, it became all the more relevant um, this year with just all the level of racial injustice and, and things that we're seeing post, you know, with, with George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and so many others that have been affected. But the, the book by ta Coates called Between the World and Me is another one that I really highly recommend um, because he is a, a gifted writer in so many ways. But it's a essentially he he it's like a letter to his son that he's writing, and he he walks you through the history um, and the, the concepts of so much of what we believe even as race today in his book, and it's it's a really um, I highly recommend it, and he's he's someone we everyone should be reading. Um, and then the the third one I don't know can I go four because I actually have four. <laughs> So the third one is actually a trilogy, and this goes back to the food side of things, but David Montgomery is a fantastic author, and he's written three books that I, I, I recommend all three, Dirt, The Hidden Half of Nature, and, and then Growing a Revolution, but it's all about food and agriculture, how it's grown, and, and the opportunities that exist. And then the final book I would recommend, and this is one that is really sat with me for quite some time because it, it came out over over a decade ago, and I read it just a few years ago. It's, it's the book is called Pulse, and it's by a man named Robert Frenane. And this is one of those books, like I said, that just sticks with you because he threw a it's a huge, I mean it's dense, it's gonna be like five hundred pages through this compendium. He, he takes us on a journey of kind of where we've come from as humans and our place in the world and on the planet and where we're going and what we can do when we start to look at things differently, when we start to realize that the kind of machine, the machine-like aspect of how we have created the industrial world is, is incomplete is the way he phrases it. Um, in that there's this door opening that once we get over the, the way that we've done things is not where we need to be going going forward because we need to look at ourselves in place of, like in our context, in our nature, in the planetary boundaries that we have. And once we do that, all these new doors will open. And, and you know, he, he takes us on this, took, took me on a journey of just kind of the, of humans on this world and humans on this planet and humans like vis-a-vis like biology, which has been here for millions and millions and millions of years. And, you know, kind of left me with this whole, like, we are so young as humans and we have so much to learn and we have so much more to become a part of who we are in our full selves. So his book is one that I, I, uh, I really love and I, I really wish more people had read, had read it. And what I realized, because um, I, I read about it afterwards, he died within a year, I think, of the book coming to publication. And so um, it, didn't, it didn't get, I think, the full press and accolades that I think it deserved. But if that's something, one book that I would get people to read, I, I, I highly recommend it because it really helps to give some perspective um, on what we are and where we are and, and what we can do. So you snuck a trilogy into the top three choices, but I'm going to ask an additional question. Um, w- what about your top cookbook or one top cookbook oh. since you used so many this year? Has there been just yeah. one that you've been inspired by? 
there's never just one, of course, but I will get to be, I will just give you just one. I have been loving Melissa Clark's dinner book. That is, she, she's one, she's a very gifted um, cook, but dinner is one I go back to again and again and again, because one, the recipes are so good. I mean, there's some, there's some duds. There's always, I mean, you're always going to have that with a good book. But what I love about dinner is they all are meals that can be done like 45 minutes or less. So she, they're really intended to be weekday meals. And so that's one that, um, and, and she has veg, you know, vegetarian, she has meat-based uh, pasta. She breaks it out really easily. Um, you, you will, in some cases, need to go find the ingredients if you, you have to and plan for them. But for the most part, too, they're things that you're not going to have to go too hard, you know, to search too hard to, to find them. So that's one that I that I really love for weekday. If you, if you want one for the weekends, I have one for the weekends too. <laughs> All right, what's, the, yeah. what's the one for the weekend? And then, I'll, and then I have my last question before we wrap up. <laughs> I love Odalenghi. Oh, so, yes. I mean, I, I feel like all of Odalenghi's cookbooks are ones that, um, even his simple one is not always that simple. So, but right. those are ones that, without a doubt, the flavor is phenomenal. I, I mean, there are very few... Um, you know, dead recipes with Odalenghi because it, they're just so remarkable in terms of the savory and the, the, the sweetness combinations. I just, I love um, cooking, but it does take time. I mean, it's like two to three hours long <laughs> to do his, um, a lot of his recipes, but I'm a big fan. <laughs> So my last question uh, today is: I know that your um, your your position at Simple Mills is is a year long stint, and um, w- which is now multiple months in. What will you be doing uh, career wise when that ends? Yeah. So you know, my my plan at this point is is to go independent and 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 do independent consulting. So it's an, initially what I had been planning to do. Uh, before this opportunity came up, and so that's kind of what I think I will will do when it when this wraps up. And it it's you know when I when I think about just all the amazing experiences I've been you know had the good fortune to ha- to have over the years. Um, I, I I believe I have a lot to offer, and I hope I can offer it to more and more companies. So whether companies be you know in, you know small and starting up, more mid sized or large, um, my 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 goal is to kind of present myself as someone who can help um, those companies make those next steps to really truly incorporating um, sustainability into their businesses. And it'll be food focused, just obviously with my background, but um, yeah, really helping companies who, who want to take steps and meaningful steps to, to drive change and integrate sustainability in all that they do. So that's the plan for right now. Um, things always change as you know, but that, that that's the, that's the game plan at this point. <laughs> Well, Shauna, best of luck with that. Of course, we're all rooting for you. And um, it's been such a pleasure to have you. I realize I could, I could talk to you for another three hours, but we'll, we'll end there. And um, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks, uh, everyone, for listening today. And if you liked today's episode, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite uh, place is to listen to this podcast. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The video version can be watched on YouTube on the North Star Unplugged channel. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. 
Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.